In this episode of The Interface, I speak with Mike Matusik, Global Operations Director for Amphenol Advanced Sensors. Mike has been with Amphenol for 10 years after starting his career in the automotive industry. We talk about growing up in a hard-working, middle-class family in the Midwest and the lifelong values he inherited. We talk about learning from incredible mentors in the automotive industry, then the decision to leave that world and come to Amphenol. And we talk about how, whether it's leading an automotive team or a sensors team, operational success is always the same. This is The Interface. First, Mike, thanks for, for coming on here today. It looks like both of us today are working from home, which is uh, fortunate and unfortunate. Although, how close are you to the nearest facility that you manage? Um, thanks, Chris. Hey, first, thanks for having me. Um, appreciate we could link up here. Thanks for the time. Um, yeah, so um, I actually live in, in Metro Detroit. Um, the good news is we have an office that uh, I can work out of that's really an automotive office um, in Novi, Michigan, about 20 minutes from here. But uh, the closest facility to me that uh, I have responsibility for in terms of a management perspective is really our St. Mary's facility, which is about a, about a six-hour drive from where I'm located and make that quite often. So I think I've done that probably 20 times in the last, uh, last year or so before COVID, of course. Yeah, St. Mary's, Pennsylvania, which is, yes. where is that exactly in Pennsylvania? So it is um, basically take uh, I-80, the uh, Ohio Turnpike, straight across, um, and don't get off. <laughs> get, take take uh, 79 to Pennsylvania, and you'll you'll run right into uh, basically St. Mary's, so um, kind of central PA. So as the operations director for the Advanced Sensor Group, um, St. Mary's is one of your main locations, but uh, can you just briefly go through the locations that you manage and, and what's done in those facilities? Yeah, sure. So um, we have, uh, of course, St. Mary's PA, as you uh, already mentioned. Um, we're really doing, um, I'll, I'll call it uh, thermistor manufacturing there. So we're taking rare earth minerals, um, uh, mixing them up, cooking them, and, and turning them into literally the sensor elements um, that work on resistance and give us the, uh, the results desired. Um, got a facility in, uh, in Tijuana, Mexico. Um, it's a fairly large facility, you know, five, 500 people. Um, and what we're doing is we're taking, um, in that facility, uh, being located in low cost area, we're actually doing value add in that facility. So we're taking thermistors produced in St. Mary's and we're doing, you know, the assembly, the harness work and, and doing all the value add to those components, um, yeah. in, in our Mexican operation. Um, got a facility in Taunton, United Kingdom. Um, in England, uh, we've um, what we're doing there is, uh, is similar to what we're doing in um, in St. Mary's. We're actually, but it's a little different. Rather than making the disc um, style of thermistor, we're actually making chips. So they're a little bit uh, a little bit different technology. They're square. Um, rather than being priced, um, pressed out in form, they're actually diced with a dicing saw. But uh, function essentially the same as the um, as the discs that we're manufacturing in um, in St. Mary's. And then that product in Taunton ends up going to our um, our Asian facilities. So we've got three places three places in or two places in China. Um, Changzhou, China, and uh, and Ninga, China, and those two places are again are using the for the large part the uh, the, the the chips manufactured in Taunton, doing the value added work, um, um, in, in in making end harnesses and products for our customers um, out of those parts. 
Um, last facility is uh, is located in Korea. It's Pyeongtaek, Korea. Um, and there's a little bit of a mix. We're doing, um, we're actually doing uh, wafer dye assembly. So some of the stuff that Mark's doing in, in Fremont uh, on the six inch scale we're doing there. We're also doing a little bit of, um, of, of disc manufacturing um, for the uh, Asian profile of, uh, of, of parts. And then we're doing some assembly in Korea as well because we've got a pretty good um, contract manufacturing partner that's fairly low cost. So we're kind of, uh, kind of doing it all in Korea, so to speak. Um, mainly for the Korean market specifically. So I do a lot of business with the Samsungs, the um, SK Innovations, uh, the Duans, the Hyundai's of the world, and Kias. So, so it's busy. So you got a lot. You got a lot to manage. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on the road. You know, I was uh, before um, before the pandemic. I would, you know, probably about an, an eighty-five or ninety percent on the road guy when he wow. when he had encountered the Sundays. Take off on Sunday, go home on and usually Friday. Um, it's kind of my rhythm normally. So, well, I mean, that brings up the obvious question. Then, what has it been like for you for the last four months, being home probably more than you have been in in quite some time? Hey, it's been uh, just just interesting. Um, you know, there's a number of things um, that are going to come out of the pandemic that, that quite honestly, probably you know, never go back to normal um, or never go back to how they were. Normal is probably the wrong word. Um, you know, I, I was reading some articles on um, on the airlines recently, and you know, they, they largely think that uh, business travel, which is about seventy percent of their revenue, um, probably won't come back to the level that it was in 2019 or, or even before. So I think that you know they're making a lot of change um, in terms of what they're marketing and what they're planning and aircraft fleet and all that stuff. And that's just one example of something that probably isn't going to go back to normal. And I, I mentioned that because really office work is probably something that doesn't go back. I mean, companies just aren't going to have offices to accommodate every single employee they have, and they're going to take advantage of the fact that it's actually more productive in many cases to, to work from home. And I've learned a lot of that this time, you know, spending 16, 17 hours on an aircraft from Detroit to Shanghai, um, it's difficult to, to get a lot done on that, as you would well know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I talk to the China team every single night um, from my house here and, and, and really been able to maximize, you know, some of my personal productivity and, and a lot of the team's productivity, taking advantage of the work at home. Um, and, and overall, it's been good. You know, I think uh, I think we've, we've learned a lot uh, as a company through this. How about from the personal side? Because I know that you have four kids uh, ranging in age from what, like uh, seven or eight to 15, roughly that. So uh, that has got to be a lively household with four kids that I'm sure are, you know, just chomping at the bit to get out and be active and do all sorts of stuff. And you've been largely away from that, especially during the school year. Now you're back and you're just in the middle of all this as you're trying to coordinate with China and Tijuana and Korea and St. Mary's, Pennsylvania. How have you adjusted to that part of it from the work standpoint as well? Yeah, so I'm, I'm lucky. It's exactly exactly right. Four kids, um, three girls, one boy. Boy's the oldest. Um, and I'm really lucky for a couple aspects. Um, one, my wife is absolutely unbelievable, takes care of largely everything um, with them. And that's not an easy task because all of them, even the eight-year-old, are very sporty. So they all play travel sports. Yeah. Um, they're, they're super outdoorsy, um, really, really into that stuff. And so she takes care of kind of um, shoveling them around and, and taking care of all their stuff. And it's, it's just been unbelievable how she does that. My parents are located about a couple hours away from here where I live today and, and her parents as well. And so the two of them have really been instrumental in, in helping out uh, with getting them where they need to go. 
Um, and they spend a lot of time at grandma and grandpa's um, when they're not in sports because quite honestly, it keeps the house quiet and I can work a lot better. So even today, they're they're uh, out of town um, at grandma and grandpa's um, for the rest of the week up there. So I think that worked out quite nice. Um, and, and really it's enabled me, you know, yeah, started from an early age. Um, it really was, you know, brought into me that you know every great struggle or every great challenge um, usually yields, um, you know, the best results at the end of the day, or, or you make some some really awesome good. Usually comes out of a real great struggle, and you know, for me, it's no different. You know, I told you they're really athletic and they're real sporty. I've probably seen twenty or thirty games that under normal normal circumstances, I wouldn't even have seen. And so from a yeah. personal side, it's, it's been a real advantage for me to be able to you know, be involved in them, see sports I didn't see. I would normally have been watching by um, by uh, FaceTime on the cell phone, and now I can see them live and, and, and watch them play. And so I think, you know, that's been certainly a positive um, from the personal side that's come out of this for me. Well, that's great. Um, and I'm glad to hear that that part of it's worked out and maybe given you a little bit of a different perspective too, because I don't think that – Anytime soon, we're probably not going to go back to you jumping on an airplane and hanging out in China for a couple of weeks or Korea. So, um, yeah, it's it's good to be able to adjust to that and I think see the positive, too. You talked about your parents. I know you and I shared or you shared some information with me beforehand about working, uh, growing up in a, in a hardworking family in Michigan, first Flint and then out in the country a little bit. And your father being uh, a longtime employee in the automotive industry, GM and and, and others. Um, just talk through a little bit about that as far as your family history and growing up in that type of an environment with your parents and, and working hard and, and, and working his way up. Yeah, okay, great. Hey, um, yeah, so I was born in the late 70s, um, as you said, um, in Flint, Michigan, um, really uh, close to downtown, um, honestly speaking. Um, and my dad was a, uh, an hourly worker for General Motors um, his whole career. Uh, actually spent, I think, about 33 years at the end of it wow. um, at GM before he retired. He is now retired. Um, was a was I was born to I was the oldest of uh, of two siblings so there's there's three of us in the house in total um, and, uh, and and honestly uh, it was just a wonderful wonderful um, house that I was lucky enough fortunate enough to grow up in um, it, you know, if you're familiar with GM in the late 70s early 80s wasn't um, the prime time from a Flint perspective so certainly was uh, kind of off and on in terms of work for my dad um, but I'll tell you, you know, what. I'll call us, you know, I kind of summarize it for an email. I call us probably short on monetary um, mm -hmm. support uh, at times, but just made up more than made up for it with just the love we had in the house and, and just so lucky to have my brothers and sisters and my parents. And, and we really, really remained in the state, just a really, really, really tight knit group. What What did you learn from that as far as, a, you know, a work perspective then? Because then I know you go to Michigan State, you get into engineering, you do very well with high honors. So what was it that your your father and your mother also instilled in you as far as a work ethic to really push yourself to to succeed in life at your job, your career, your family? Yeah. So, um, you know, in that, in that regard, my, my dad was a very, very hard worker, much like the Clint profile. You know, the mantra of it isn't right. It isn't if it isn't rough. It isn't right. Um, just just a hard, hard working guy, a really, really smart guy. Um, you know, didn't attend university, um, finished uh, high school on a GED. But I'll tell you, one of the smarter guys you'll ever meet yeah. um, <laughs> with that with that background. Just yeah. to be honest with you, he. Um, to my knowledge, he's never, ever been late for a day of work in his life. 
So, I mean, he's just built that into me. And if you talk to guys uh, from the office, they'll tell you that uh, I'm a, a little bit uh, obsessive compulsive when it comes to timing and, and being in meetings and time. And I think a lot of it goes to that, um, goes to his upbringing, um, goes to how he brought me up. That's good um, for an operations director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, um, you know, the, the other side of it is, you know, he loved his job. He would tell me repeatedly. He really sincerely enjoyed it. A lot of people, you know, have this opinion. There's a number of auto workers that don't like it. It was, it was um, meaning. It was, uh, you know, not really uh, challenging. But I can tell you, he loved the people he worked with. He loved the company. He's a car guy um, through and through. And especially when he made his transition in skill traits, he really, really loved the work. And so he really built that into me. Make sure you find some place that you just love to go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, he really pushed me hard to go to school, really pushed me hard to figure out, uh, was it engineering, was it computer science, what do you want to do? And it wasn't that he didn't want me to follow in his footsteps of hourly work. It was that he wanted me to have a little more stability for my family. And being through, again, what we were through in the late 70s, early 80s of yeah. you know layoff and work, layoff and work, he saw my education as a real clear path to – you know, get some stability for my future family. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's really worked out almost like uh, he was Nostradamus. Here I am at Amphenol, a company that's just got unbelievable stability, yeah. doing a job I absolutely love, um, working with new people every single day. And so, I mean, I give a lot of credit to him and my mom for uh, steering me down this path. What was it about engineering that intrigued you? I always like to ask this about, you know, because I've talked to a lot of engineers uh, on this podcast and just in general because I'm always semi fascinated with them because I don't I don't have a technical background at all. All I do is just talk a bunch of stuff on here and and other things. <laughs> you know, and try to tell the I'm just a storyteller, but I'm always fascinated with people, you know, men and women I talk to who got into engineering, um, you know, whether it be mechanical or electrical or or whatever it might have been. What was it about it for you though? Was it something that you loved or did you see it more as a means to an end? No, um, it was more something I loved. I've been really a mechanical guy from the beginning. Um, I'm a car guy as well. Got that from my grandpa. My dad um, came along to me uh, at 13 years old. My dad brought home an MG midget um, with the motor in a box and, and the skeleton of the car sitting here. And he and I spent our leisurely time over the course of a couple of years putting the thing together and, and making it run. Powder blue convertible MG midget. Nice. Uh, got pictures of me driving at 13 years old. But um, the uh, and, you know it kind of goes back to there. And ever since then, I've really been interested in how stuff works, how it goes together, the mechanics of, of, of even old design. And so it kind of was a natural conversion for me through high school. And then I love math as well. Um, and so as a, it was kind of a natural progression for me to go from high school to really mechanical engineering. And so it's, I'd say it's a, a love that's deep inside me. So then you get into the automotive industry. So almost per family tradition, you get out of college and you transition into the automotive industry in, in Michigan. What did you what were some of the jobs that you did while you were there? Because you were there for quite a while. Yeah, so I spent 13 years, um, and I say General Motors, um, but it was really um, a combination of General Motors, um, Delphi, and then through bankruptcy proceedings that happened in, in 07, 08, ended up back at GM um, before I left and joined Amphenol. Um, so yeah, it was, was really, uh, didn't work anywhere else other than that, um, than that uh, company for 13 years, but just held a ton of jobs. I started off um, in uh, design engineering. Um, literally, the first job I had was in design engineering. Um, lasted about two weeks. 
and uh, and and grabbed my boss and said, "Hey, this just this is not going to work, man. I, I I can't. The desk isn't for me to sit here and work on a tail lamp or work on a EPS power steering unit for um, for 12 hours a day. It's just not something that I'm not inspired by it. And, and again, yeah. learn early on, do something you love. I could tell right away a couple weeks into it, it wasn't something I loved. Huh. So I talked with HR and luckily made the transition um, to the plant. And so my real, real start was as a quality engineer um, okay. in in, uh, in a power steering plant um, for GM, where I actually made the uh, rack and pinion power steering unit that turned the wheels of a vehicle. So um, awesome start. Um, I, uh, I then I progressed through my career and really held operationally almost every job they had at GM. I was a quality manager for a while. I was the production control superintendent. I was operations superintendent. Um, I was the lean uh, manager for the site. Um, so really held most all the operation jobs that. GM Jim kind of had um, over that 13 years. Um, did spend one year in 2004 working with a Toyota joint venture, um, and so moved the family to, to Georgetown, Kentucky, or to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and worked with a, a brake plant for about 18 months. Um, really, I was still a GM employee and was on the um, executive share program. Um, GM sent me to Toyota. Toyota sent an executive to GM. And the point was that uh, you know they were going to learn how to penetrate the North American market with vehicles a little better from a marketing perspective, and they were going to teach us a little bit more about manufacturing and lean manufacturing, specifically the Toyota production system. So spent uh, spent a year doing that as well. So out of all the things that you did then while you were in the automotive industry, what were – I don't know if I want to call it highlights, but what were the, some of the things that stick out to you as far as – from a manufacturing and operations perspective that have stuck with you throughout your time in, in Amphenol as well. Uh, what are some of those, um, you know, whether it just be policies, procedures, um, you know, uh, various systems or whatever that may be? Yeah, good. So, you know, the, the year I spent at Toyota was, you know, <laughs> up till my time in Amphenol was really probably the, the greatest year of learning I had. Um, was really, really, um, fortuitous that uh, the same year I was with this company, and it was called Ambrake at the time, again, making brakes for Toyota, they actually moved their top sensei from Japan to the company as well, because they were really trying to get some big improvements out of the, out of the organization there. Yeah. And so everyone was really scared of the guy, because <laughs> they were all, I mean, he's on Taiichi Ono's original staff. So yeah, I mean, yeah. he's a very senior Japanese gentleman. Everyone was really, really scared of him. They kind of left him alone. And I, I wasn't working with Toyota. I mean, I was a GM guy. I was in Go Waiting team. And so I kind of hitched up to him and we spent basically every single day together, me, him, and an interpreter kind of cruising around the plant, um, learning all we could learn. And I'll tell you, you know, from him, I really learned a lot about you know, how lean manufacturing works, um, you know, there's certainly no silver bullets when it comes to that. That's one of the big problems that uh, that people get when they try to replicate some things that Toyota does. But what there is that Toyota is very strong at that really carries over to Amphenol is they've got this mantra that no problem is a problem. Mm. You know, the goal of your system is not to make it easy for you to run the place. The goal of your system is to make it so when you have a problem, you see it quick and you fix it right away. Pretty Amphenolish, by the way, as well. <laughs> And, and so I think, you know, that's one thing that's really stuck with me. Um, and I really try to take that to the plants. I really try to get the guys um, in our local sites working real hard on, um, on that is how do we how do we challenge ourselves? You know, you can keep a bunch of inventory in the plant and great it runs fine and no problem. How do you get good enough? Or you take the inventory away 
so that when you have a problem, you get the whole group to rally around and fix it before you short the customer. And that's how you really get cash flow. That's how you really get a lean system. That's how you don't have too much capacity. That's how you don't have extra headcount. That's how you have a why. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I could see why that would be kind of inspirational when you hit yourself onto someone who's, you know, in essence, a legend in the industry. Um, so I good call on your part to do that. Yeah, and you're right. You kind of had to get out of jail free card. Because you're not an employee there, you're just kind of there on a, you know, you're almost like a foreign exchange student. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and we did great. everything together. I mean, we'd go to the gym together. Even we, we, I was, I was, he was in the same um, corporate housing I was in. So we'd go to the gym at night every time. We'd be we'd, through the interpreter. We'd be on the treadmill running the interpreter. We'd be, you know, interpreting between me and uh, and Takimoto what, what we're gonna work on the next day, what questions we had. I think back at it, I'm like, that's crazy. That's great. I couldn't imagine doing that. <laughs> so how did you then? Uh, what did what precipitated you leaving and then finally going to Amphenol in the automotive group? Yeah, so um, kind of interesting. Um, I was uh, so if you think about the timing, it's very strange. I joined Amphenol two thousand ten, right? That's that's at the end of the automotive crisis, right? So I, I had been through the um, reduce your staff by forty percent at GM. Um, been through the revenue disappears overnight um, on the truck parts that we were building. Literally fifty percent of your revenue is gone, and we're kind of on the on the uptick of of uh, automotive market at that point in time. And and you know you know kind of managed through the real tough times, and we were on the upside of it. And so the timing of it was real was real strange. I wasn't looking at all. I was real happy. I was uh, you know still doing a job that I, I like quite honestly. But um, got a call from a guy named Steve Iacampo and, uh, and said, hey, Amphenol's looking. Um, your name came via someone we know mutually. Um, there's a guy named John Trainer. Um, he's got the task to start growing what's currently a small um, automotive business for, uh, for, for a company called Amphenol into a big automotive business. Um, looks like your career and your experience is a good fit for us. Are you interested? Um, and, and originally I said no, knew very little about Amphenol, um, uh, didn't, didn't know a whole lot about the company joining it, but I did have two colleagues and very good friends of mine that worked at GM that had joined Amphenol in front of me. So I took the opportunity to call them up, uh, Rob Goodchild and yeah. Mimi Morgan. Yeah. No, you know, both Mimi. of them well, yeah. Yeah, so, so you took the chance to call them up and, and, you know, filled me in a little more on the company, filled me a little more on the culture. They knew me. I mean, really well personally. We did a lot of uh, stuff outside of work together as well. So um, I called him back and said, hey, let's, let, let's talk. And so ended up, uh, so this is on, let's call it on a Wednesday. I don't remember the actual day, but let's just say it was a Wednesday. Called Steve back said, hey, I'm interested. I said, okay, well, let's let's get you set up. Why don't you come down to uh, John Trainer and Gunter Spielbauer and Novi. Why don't you go down and talk to them tomorrow? So, oh, well, it's a short notice, but okay, we can be at 6 o'clock, 6 p.m., no problem. So I went down, met John and Gunter, um, 6 p.m., uh, drove back home, um, went to work the next day, got a call from, from John saying, Hey, um, interview went well. I'd like to get you to Wallingford so you can talk to, uh, Jerome Monteith, who was the uh, VP of HR at the time, yep. Diana, yep. uh, CFO obviously, and, and Adam. And so this is on, and we'll line up a flight ticket. So it's like on a Monday now. So Monday I fly out to Wallingford, met with, uh, with Jerome, who by the way, is just a true Amphenolian, um, through and through, and just a fantastic, fantastic person. Um, got to spend about an hour with Adam, hour with Diana, um, and then I had a meeting um, related to my old job. So I asked, hey, can I use an office in Wallingford for a couple hours? I got a call I got to do, and then I'll, I'll head back to the hotel and fly out the next day. So I did. 
And in the course of that, uh, that phone call, um, Jerome's going to walk me out. Now it's two hours after the formal interviews are done. He says, hey, how'd it go? I said, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how it went, but it was fantastic. You know, it was awesome meeting those guys no matter what. I just love the personalities. I love meeting those people. I love the, the passion around the company. You could tell in an hour interview how, how much they loved it and how much they loved the company. So I told him that's, that's how it is. He goes, well, the, the job offer will probably beat you home because we're going to send it via FedEx now and, and your flight's not till 10 tomorrow night so you'll it'll probably be there when you get home and he said it and here's the details it's abc and i told him on the spot i'll take it wow didn't even hadn't seen it yet and he said you know how can you do that you need time to think about it so I, I don't need time to think about it i know just meeting these people and and it's evident how the company runs and it's evident how the decision process goes and if there's anything i didn't like about my job at gm it'd be the bureaucracy the red tape the working across organizational silos and it was just so obvious in, in a three hour spent with those individuals that that's not how all works. That's not an all in and, and it's something I wanted to be part of early on. So was that the biggest difference for you as far as moving from, you know, the, the big prime, right? The GR is someone in the automotive industry to in essence, a component manufacturer, but you have this freedom that you would have never had had you stayed at the the larger company. Is that accurate to say? No doubt, one hundred percent. That's yeah. exactly the difference. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. And, 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 and the ability at Amphenol just to, you know, there's still ability to make change, and we did some great things at GM. No doubt about it. But the ability at Amphenol to go do something today that changes the bottom line tomorrow, and and oh by the way, you can go try it. You can always make it back the way it was, yeah. but let's try to do something new and let's try to make it better. And that just the ability to do that at Sunday Amphenol is just, it's just fantastic and not getting caught into, hey, let me go get this approval and that approval and, and, and all those things. Just just go get it done, move the OI in the right direction, take care of the people, and, and everything else kind of works itself out. Yep. You're, you know, of, of all the people I've talked to, almost everyone says some form or some variation of exactly what you're talking about. So that's, that's, that's great. And I can see that... Uh, you know, the same thing happened to you as well, this realization like, wow, I can I can kind of make changes as I see fit. And as long as I build a case for it and it looks like it looks like it's working, I can do it, which is, you know, is very heartwarming to be able to have that in your in your work experience. So you are you work in the automotive side of the business and then you switch to sensors, which is a radically different uh, at least end product. But how much of it is the same from the operations and, and the manufacturing side for you? Because the technology is completely different. Yeah, technology is totally different. I had, honestly, you know, zero experience um, in the sensor business and, and going through the interview process with Pete uh, and Dave and, and, and the team and Renee and the team. It was very, I was very honest and said, hey, you know, I don't know sensors. I don't know MEMS manufacturing. I know that's a big chunk of the job. Um, but I do know manufacturing in general. I know how lean systems work. I know how, um, how knowing our numbers works. And, and that's something I can, I can help you out with. And I love to dig into the details. And so, you know, the, the, the product's totally different, but how you get there, how you get to the ends really isn't, isn't all that different. And at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, do you have the, the best team in the world, which we do in sensors and, and how do you keep that team um, working on what makes the most sense from a priority perspective and how do you keep, keep, uh, you know, working every day to make tomorrow just a little bit better than, than today. And if you're doing that, everything again, it's going to work itself out if you're, if you're getting better. That's, that's, uh, that's one thing that always looms true. You know, I know the sensor group is a, 
you know, at least for Amphenol historically, is a fairly recent acquisition, just the sensor group in general, but it's grown immensely in just the short period of time it's been with Amphenol. I mean, how excited are you to be a part of uh, this group of the corporation that, you know, it's almost like the sky's the limit with the future for sensors and, and for you and, and what you can build in your operations and your manufacturing teams. I imagine that's got to be super exciting for you over the next three, five, ten years. Yeah, yeah, just it's unbelievable. I mean, when you look at at particular sensors, we're we're a little bit lucky um, in that you know our market is still growing like crazy, and that's regardless of what the overall market does, right? Mm-hmm. You look at cars, for example. You take a car that's you know, eight, ten years old, and it's got one or two sensors on it. You take cars that are coming off the lines now that they've literally got. 100 sensors on them now, yeah, um, yeah. and that continues to grow. So no matter what the vehicle does, if we settle off at 16 million vehicles in North America or 15 million vehicles, our market and our penetration for sensors is still going up and up and up and up. And as you said, it's, it's really a limitless potential in terms of the uh, the size of the business we can build this thing to. We've got huge plans, honestly speaking, over the next, uh, you know, we're working our strap plan as we speak. I won't speak the exact numbers, but we've definitely got yeah, some don't. plans inside the <laughs> sensor business, inside the sensor business to go, um, yeah. you know, to, to really grow the business like crazy, um, certainly at rates even faster than, than Amphenol has planned in, in their growth plan. So again, yeah, just just great to be involved with it. Really exciting, inspirational, and, uh, and uh, the best is yet to come for us, that's for sure. Well, Mike, I'll, I'll let you go here, but I just wanted to say I, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Um, I can certainly, your, your passion and enthusiasm for this exudes through this call here. So <laughs> I can tell you really love what you're doing. You're very passionate about it. Um, it seems like you're in high spirits and can't wait for the future for you and uh, what you're doing with the sensor team. But again, thank you, Mike, for taking the time to do this today. Hey, thanks so much, Chris. Keep uh, keep up the good work, especially on the frontline stuff. Appreciate everything you're doing. Um, stay safe, and uh, best is yet to come. Thanks so much. 